The July 2023 NATO summit in Vilnius was a chance to end the ambiguity and incrementalism that has left Ukraine vulnerable to Russian aggression and continues to feed Putin's delusions that he can win the war and beat the Western alliance. The NATO summit, Ukraine's counteroffensive and the recent instability between Russia and the Wagner Group have ensured that the Russo-Ukrainian war remains in the headlines, but what discussions are happening behind closed doors and what events on the ground may be influencing the direction of the war and its aftermath? Will the clear moral stance of supporting Ukraine in wartime descend into messy compromises in peacetime and ethical trade-offs with the pariah terror state, Russia? Please like and subscribe to see more of our great speakers and access the content on Silicon Curtain channel. And do please consider becoming a patron to support the work that we do. Mark Timnitsky is a Ukrainian-American freelance journalist based just outside of New York City and is a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. He has covered Eastern European affairs and energy security matters for many years with articles published in the New York Times, Forbes, Daily Mail, EU Observer, Kiev Post, Atlantic Council, Wilson Center, and other US and European news outlets and think tanks. His works have been cited and shared by the European Parliament, NATO, Helsinki Commission, RAND Corporation, Transparency International, and other government institutions, as well as non-governmental organizations. And of course, he has been widely interviewed in the UK, US, and EU media. And today's the son of Silicon Curtain, and I'm delighted to welcome you, Mark, to the channel. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure being here. Well, let's jump in on this topic of the NATO summit. Everyone was talking about what Ukraine should or shouldn't be offered. Now we know the conclusions of this. Um, what's your overall feeling? Is it a sense of letdown, disappointment and lost opportunity? Or is there some interesting stuff in the detail? I think it's a matter of both. So I naturally am a more optimistic, positive person. So I would like to focus on that in that the, the language with Ukraine and NATO has now changed in that when NATO issued its new communique, it stated that Ukraine's future is in NATO. Now, of course, there's no timetable. No one knows when exactly that will occur. But I think that's a big shift from previous years where there were these discussions about Ukraine joining, but no one really knows when, and, and their discussion was not entertained. And now there's a serious consideration about there is a future for Ukraine and NATO, which I, th I think is, is very symbolic. In addition, NATO created the NATO-Ukraine Council, so it'll invite the Ukrainians to more discussions on NATO and how do they cooperate and collaborate with one another. So it's a, it's a slow transition of seeing these two groups coming more closely together and working more closely with one another. On the other hand, from the Ukrainian perspective, there is a disappointment in that there is nothing concrete. There is now an agreement that Ukraine should be part of NATO, but there is no definite timeline of, in, in terms of Ukraine has to complete such and such obligations before reaching there, and there's no date timeline. And, and I think part of that unfortunately makes sense in that there's a clause within NATO stating that member 
or aspiring candidates can't have territory that's disputed or have open war. And everyone understands that if Ukraine hypothetically were to join tomorrow, then that would drag the rest of the alliance into the war with Russia. And the war that Russia has caused has been devastating and horrific and and it should not be con- should not be spread further than than what is already occurring. And is there any sense that um, because previously, I mean, before the full scale invasion, it was thought that NATO membership was at least a decade away, if not two decades away. Um, is there a sense that actually that long term time frame is curtailed in some way? So even though a date has not been put on it, that Ukraine membership uh, could happen relatively quickly once those two conditions of you know, regaining its territories and not having active uh, confrontation on its territories are met? I think yes, and, and there are a few reasons for this. First, at this recent summit, NATO allies agreed that Ukraine no longer has to fulfill a membership action plan, and that's very important for those unfamiliar the membership action plan, less different democratic, military, economic reforms, etc., for a country to complete before being considered as a candidate. But that is something that's often been seen as outdated and and certain nuances in terms of while maybe on paper a country has completed the obligations, there are still hesitation or opposition to the pursuing forward. So the fact that that hurdle has been removed is is important. I think also the current war and ukraine's cooperation with nato since 2014 is very important to highlight in that when russia invaded the donbas and crimea in 2014 ukrainian forces then started working more closely with nato conducting various training exercises and learning from their counterparts and implementing significant defense reforms former president Petro Poroshenko previously said when he was in charge of Ukraine that when the first invasion occurred, Ukraine only had 20% capability of defense-ready soldiers to, to defend against Russia. And now, as we're seeing, prior to the second invasion, Russia was believed to have the second strongest military in the world, and now it's the second strongest military in Ukraine. So so the, the rate in which the Ukrainian military has not only reformed and modernize, but their capabilities over the past nine years, which is unthinkable, is is quite remarkable. And then the, the third thing is while Ukraine is continuing its fight for independence and freedom, mm-hmm. it's also continuing its fight against corruption. And I think that that is also very telling in that during the first war, President Poroshenko under guide guidance from the European Union implemented new defense and and government reforms and that helped Ukraine earn visa free travel in 2017 as a reward for the hard work that, that they're doing they also had signed an association agreement with the European Union during his tenure and now as we've saw under president zelensky ukraine was just recently awarded eu candidate status last year and perhaps while many of these things are symbolic in nature and and ukraine as as they are aware have to still implement more reforms, it speaks volumes in, in, in that Ukraine is serious about defense reform. Ukraine is serious about governance and, and proper management so that it can eventually one day become part of the West as it hopes to. And uh, going back to the summit, I mean, obviously a lot of stuff happens behind closed doors. Uh, a lot of the decisions are thrashed out prior to you know all the leaders getting together 
there was one moment which has been commented on, um, and that is perhaps the unfortunate choice of words or tone of the British Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, um, rather than, you know, wanting to sort of uh, point fingers directly at, at him, I wanted to frame it slightly differently. And that is, you know, rather than requiring Ukraine to show, you know, eternal gratitude and actually every Ukrainian I've I've met or every event run by Ukrainian organizations have been to, there has never failed but to have been some kind of thanks in there uh, directed at sort of, you know, British, uh, US and European partners. So I, th I think Ukraine is extraordinarily grateful. Nonetheless, if we flip that around, rather than, you know, Ukraine having to be gratitude for us and thinking what, you you know, we can in give to Ukraine, shouldn't we be grateful to Ukraine for what it is doing? Because essentially it has stopped a vast uh, invasion force, uh, which could very well have threatened uh, European security and European borders if it hadn't been checked uh, by Ukraine. Yes, absolutely. And, and I think it's taken for granted in that when NATO was formed in 1949 and different enlargements occurred since then, a lot of these countries had the privilege of of just joining and, and didn't have all these hurdles to overcome. And unfortunately, in Ukraine's case, it's now fighting a second war to defend itself and frankly prove itself to the world why it's worthy of being involved in these organizations. And it's odd, but often not discussed in that Ukraine is one of the reasons why the world is so united today. Prior to this war, there were discussions in the media that perhaps Europe was fragmented or divided. And, and a few examples were the Brexit decision occurred in 2016 and, and Britain eventually decided to leave the European Union. There was divisions between Western Europe and Eastern Europe about the construction of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline and, and how countries would be influenced by the Russian energy market and control. And there's the push within NATO of having this 2% GDP on defense. And prior to the Russian invasion, only five of the 29 or 30 member countries had it. And now we're up to eight out of 31. So while, while eight out of 31 is still not a great figure, that just shows that there's a shift in mentality about the importance of defense and security. And the Ukrainians are doing everything that they can, and they are dying on the front line, not just to pretend their country, but they are fighting for values and institutions and beliefs and traditions that everyone in the West holds, which is the promotion of human rights and democracy. Yes, universal values is something that Ben Hodges talked about uh, very forcefully recently, um, that that, you know, we have to see it beyond just Ukrainians fighting for survival or for their individual culture, but actually, uh, you know, fighting for values that we perhaps have not had to fight for since the Second World War and have, to some extent, taken for granted. You're, you're, you're obviously, you know, in, in the US and I'm in the UK. Do you get that strong sense? that Ukraine is hyper aware of the fragility of democracy and you know pluralistic society and a political sphere that isn't totally 
you know, weaponized um, and politicized, because to an extent, I know in the US and the UK, there is an awful lot more uh, division between political groupings, and perhaps less sense of a common purpose, direction, and even, you know, these universal values we're talking about. I think that the Russian invasion has really forced many governments and academics and institutions to really reevaluate and and place an importance on democratic values in the process of elections and different political parties coming together despite you know differing opinions or beliefs trying to move towards a common good how has and you mentioned there really this incredible process of evolution that Ukraine has been on, um, but it's also been transformative in its relationships with the West. So if we take the long view from independence in 1991, how do you think the relationship, uh, you know, social, political, cultural, economic between Ukraine and the West and especially military has changed? So I, I think a little bit beyond Ukraine as well is when people think about Europe, they th often think about the European Union, it's become synonymous. And over the last few years, that definition of what it means to be European has expanded in, in that you have several candidate countries, not just Ukraine, but you have Moldova, you have countries within the Balkans, you have different political groups, religious groups, linguistic, ethnic groups. And it just shows that the world is more geopolitical and there's and there are more connections across people and as a result meshing all these cultures and languages and traditions together helps because you get different perspectives and different ways of viewing challenges or issues and trying to overcome and create a common good and i think that's also been highlighted in that president zelensky has kind of become this poster of the democratic world and fighting for democratic values, etc. And what do you think would be the development or the form of collaboration between future, uh, you know, relations between, say, NATO and Ukraine? Because we know from, from people like General Hodges and others that there has been over the last two decades quite a bit of sort of training and actually a lot of NATO standards in terms of uh, tactics um, have been transmitted to Ukraine. So they have this knowledge of both the Soviet way of fighting, which of course we see on full display with Russia's invasion, but they also understand you know, the NATO doctrine and, and techniques. How is that going to evolve further, do you think, both through the course of this war and in a post-war situation? Yes. Well, I think what's important is when many people hear about Ukraine and, and Ukraine's aspirations to become part of the West, they understand that Ukrainians see EU membership and NATO as a way to improve standards of living, better qualities of life, defense, etc. And there's always, I think, this ignorant thought about, okay, well, Ukraine gets all these benefits. What do we get from the Ukrainians? And And one of the most important things, I think, is Ukraine's information technology sector and its ability with cyber. So according to UNESCO, Ukraine has one of the most educated and literate populations in the world, and that's very highlighted by their information technology sector. And in addition to that, Russia has used Ukraine as a cyber testing round for at least two decades. So the Ukrainians are very familiar with cyber warfare and how to defend against cyber warfare. And that was recently recognized 
at NATO's Cyber Defense Center in Estonia, where Ukraine was invited to become a full member, not not just a participant, but a full member being involved in that. And I think that speaks volumes because it's showing, hey, we as the Ukrainians, we have something valuable to offer and give back to the rest of the world. And, and NATO would, I think, very much benefit from Ukrainian mines and, and these hard workers. And that is interesting you touch on that because this is the this is actually the reason this channel was set up and why it's called what it is. Uh, and initially it was simply going to look at propaganda, how it works, how it's disseminated, the technology behind it, but more particularly the narratives, because you can have the technology, but the effectiveness of the Russian um let's say call it the the propaganda technology, um, is the sheer scale and audacity of the lies and the variation of lies that are then propagated and how they're able to sort of weaponize um, and degrade the institution's culture and cohesion of societies they're targeting. Now, to your point there, Ukraine has experienced this like nowhere else. Um, uh, uh, what is your impression of the sort of mechanisms, defense mechanisms that Ukraine has been able to develop to counter, you know, propaganda narratives coming from Russia? I, I think that President Zelensky's background as a former actor really helps in that he understands how media works and some of these videos that the Ukrainian government is putting out, especially his institute the informational videos and what's great is it's a lot of information but it's concise in 30 seconds or a minute highlighting events that are occurring so he understands how the human attention works he understands what people are looking for and it's a way of combating this there's another organization in ukraine called stop fake and they look at russian propaganda and then provide sources on why the information the russians are putting out is incorrect to say politely and just putting an emphasis on on these matters because unfortunately many people are busy many people don't have time to fact check and one of the great things that ukraine's doing with its promotion of media is getting to the facts in a very quick and easily understandable manner without going into very nuanced detail and and other complications that sometimes would lose an audience and if people are interested in that, I've actually interviewed a couple of the co-founders of Stop Fake, including Evgen Fitchenko, who is um, also one of the sort of leading academic journalists in, in, in Ukraine. And it, it's a very interesting process, isn't it? Because a lot of these initiatives are not government led. Yes, you do have very effective now, you know, communications teams uh, for the Ministry of Information, Zelensky's team and so on. But actually, many of the more innovative uh, ways to uh, tackle topics like media literacy, fact-checking, and so on. Um, they are kind of organic, private initiatives uh, that sort of struggle in the marketplace for funding, um, but work in a very entrepreneurial fashion. Do you get a sense that that is a particularly sort of Ukrainian dynamic as well, this sort of strong civic society combined with entrepreneurial activity? I, I think so, yes. And, and I know some of your other guests have talked about this and, and that Ukrainian resilience in the Ukrainian society is unbreakable. You know, my people have been fighting against the Russians for 300 years and we're fortunate to say we're still around. And, and that's because of 
this Ukrainian desire and grit to succeed and ensure that our language and culture and people survive. And you don't get to where you are by being passive and sitting around and doing nothing. There, there's this initiative and this desire and this drive to to perform well and to succeed and, and, and do good in, in the world and things along, along that nature. I also know it's not just unique to Ukraine. I, I know that in Estonia, they also have implemented some programs to the best of my knowledge that are served for ethnic Russian and Russian speaking people in Estonia to try to combat Russian propaganda that that seeps into the Baltics too. But I unfortunately don't know more about how effective those those platforms are. But other regions within Eastern Europe and Central Asia are trying to pursue the, these options to try to address this, this propaganda and, and defeat it as, as best as they can. Absolutely, because all around the periphery of Russia and the former Soviet territories, uh, you know, there will be large populations of uh, Russian speakers. And and now, of course, there's a Russian diaspora, uh, which has which has fled the conflict, but it's um, represents both an opportunity, but also a risk Um, when it comes to the invasion itself. And I know you've written very um, compellingly about the invasion and its progress. The idea I wanted to sort of put to you and get your, your your thoughts on were that our narratives look at what's going on and we interpret where Russia is in this conflict as as failure. We see that they've given ground repeatedly, um, that they deploy you know crude tactics, they have massive loss of material, equipment, lives, and so on. To us, that is a clear, and if you put them on the scales, to us, that would be a clear negative. Does, however, Putin see it that way? And could it be that he still doesn't understand in his framework that this is a loss? And for him, could the calculation of continuing the war still be beneficial in his mind compared to the losses that are being incurred? And are we, including NATO, failing to put a higher price on his aggression uh, as a as a deterrence? I think, unfortunately, President Putin is not bothered by any of this. And there are a few examples historically. When the Soviet Union collapsed, we know on record President Putin has previously said that that was the largest catastrophe of the previous century. So that just gives you an example of the way in which he sees the world. He's written several pieces, one of which was very read in the national interest, for lack of better terms, complete propaganda, but it, it gave an insight onto how he and his Russian government perceived the world about what territory belongs to them, their imperial conquests, etc. President Putin has also said on numerous occasions that one of his desires is to be remembered in Russian history for eternity, someone similar to the previous Russian Empire rulers like Catherine the Great or Peter the Great. So unfortunately, if you have someone who is leading the country with those types of aspirations, frankly, someone who is very egotistical and narcissistic, he is not bothered by how many people have died during this war. He wants to be remembered as that head 
figure. And for him, one of the things is the illegal annexation of Crimea, where he gets to champion and say, look, I got Crimea back for the Russians. And what's some, something that's very difficult is the Russians rewrote their constitution saying that Crimea now belongs part of Russia, while the United Nations for several years continues to say that they do not acknowledge that. And now the Russian government tried to pull a similar stint, which was also seen as false by the international community, saying that the Ukrainian oblasts of Luhansk, Donetsk, Zaporizhia, and Kherson all belong to Russia. So I, I am not smart enough to know this, but I, I don't know how you reason or can negotiate with a country that believes that everything it stole from you is rightfully theirs. And I think it's important to highlight that to counter these ideas of, oh, well, Russia and Ukraine should just go to the negotiation table and have a discussion because we've seen these horrible atrocities that the Russians are, are committing in the Ukrainian areas that are occupied by Russia currently with these mass graves, the kidnapping of hundreds of thousands of children and murdering uh, unarmed civilians and, and raping women. It, it's disgusting and very disturbing and that's why the west and and thank you again for support as we've discussed earlier why ukraine needs to win this war because otherwise all of these ukrainians in those occupied areas will be subjected to these brutalities by the russians now it's it's difficult to say from the western perspective in that yes it's very easy to criticize and say that the west should be doing more providing weapons more quickly. Uh, one example I know of is when the Russian invasion began in February of, of last year, there was a comment about, oh, well, we can't give the Ukrainians F-16s because it'll take them four to six months to learn. And now, you know, fast forward, the war has been going on for 18 months. So for that example, had these types of weapons and, and trainings been provided sooner, perhaps the war would have ended. But of course, we don't know. We, we can't speculate with these things. But it's also very important to highlight that this war has united the world, right? So Western countries, either part of the European Union or NATO, and then going beyond that, like Japan, have provided defense equipment. But countries from Latin America and Asia and Africa have been providing medical aid to the Ukrainians and humanitarian aid, even countries that supposedly have a close relationship with Putin in Central Asia, they've been sending a lot of aid to the Ukrainians for them to survive and win this war. So I, I think that while, yes, it's very easy to criticize and say, yes, countries in the West should be doing more, the entire world is is, is providing assistance. And I think that just speaks volumes and how connected we are as a society now. We'll come to to the munitions and so on because I think there's the, there's an interesting angle to explore there. But picking up on the topic you were talking about there of the occupied territories of um, the sort of brutality, um, not just on Ukrainian territory, but also you know the increasing uh, arbitrariness of of uh, how people are treated in Russia as as well. Um, this is this is this is the disturbing aspect, isn't it? You know, the, Putin's invasion is not a sign of weakness. Um, it's a no, sorry, it's not a sign of strength. It is, is really an indicator of weakness. And as he's got weaker through this, and as the failures have mounted, we do see escalating brutality. However, 
the regime in place in the occupied territories, I think could be described as sort of neo-Stalinist in that there's a total absence of rule of law. There's torture chambers. There's all sorts of horrors and and, and arbitrary, you know, murders that we, we 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 don't even hear about at this point, but will be uncovered in future. You can directly compare that to Moscow of the 1930s and, uh, you know, the, the stories people tell of, um, you know, the sort of KGB visiting people at night and them disappearing. That, that I think, is, is right there on the occupied territories. Russia itself is not quite there yet, but there was an interesting article um, written by Anne Applebaum, which suggests that that moment is, is fast approaching of large-scale prison camps, which at the moment are largely populated by Ukrainians. But once that process kicks in, it's not inconceivable that there will soon not be large, you know, internment camps, detention camps throughout Russia. And, uh, you know, do you see that as an escalating process as Putin gets more brittle and paranoid? It's certainly possible. I know that thousands of not just children but ukrainian citizens in general have been kidnapped and forced to move to russia where they are in camps or in the case of children they're being forcibly adopted by russians so that these ukrainian children forget their culture and heritage and language etc and it's just another way to try to eliminate the sense of what it means to be ukrainian and to go on a, on a quick tangent, outside of these brutalities too, the Russians realize that they're losing, they're, they're using outdated equipment. And one way that they're seeing, as we can see as an example of President Putin not being concerned about his actions, is the destruction of Ukrainian land and territory. So over the last year and a half, we've seen Russian soldiers post videos on social media that they're scorching wheat fields. We've seen the Russians were responsible for the recent destruction of the Kokhovka Dam and in southern Ukraine, where tons of acres were flooded and no longer usable to provide food. And this is also an important reason why the world should care about this, this war is because it's not just a war between Russia and Ukraine. Russia's committing atrocities that are leading to a food crisis in several parts of the world where people in Africa and the Middle East rely heavily on Ukrainian grain and produce, etc. And by destroying these, these agricultural areas, it's preventing food from people getting there. And the United Nations to date estimates that something like 40 million citizens in, in those areas that we just mentioned are being impacted by, by food. So it's not just the brutalities of, of torturing and murdering civilians, but also impacting those beyond the region. And if we want this to end faster, and I think many of the military experts I've spoken to have said that, you know, if the supply of weaponry was matched to the need in a more timely fashion, then it would not only save lives, but it would contail this entire war. You've written compellingly that weapons and ammunition need to be far higher up the agenda, uh, not just in terms of supply, but also we know that 
Western countries have downgraded their production capacity of these for their own defense. Um, so what do you think the emphasis really needs to be on now? I think it's a thought of how our weapons being provided and manufactured, etc. And there are many benefits to this. Uh, I understand that, again, the wars between Russia and Ukraine and, and other parts of the world may not necessarily believe that we live in a in a war-torn era, right? We haven't gotten to the point of the Second World War, for example. But it would provide numerous economic opportunities for countries. We are just still getting out of governments and economies that were severely impacted by the coronavirus pandemic, where countries lost their GDPs and millions of citizens around the world lost their jobs. And by a focusing and, and strengthening defense sectors across the West, it'll create more jobs as citizens will be working in these plants. More weapons will be created. If the West chooses to do so, it can send still high quality, but slightly outdated materials to Ukraine so that there's not this holdup as, as we've discussed, while the Western countries will have brand new brand new defense capabilities. And also, as we discussed earlier, just there's a shift in focus about defense security, national security, how are countries cooperating with one another. And it'll be interesting to see how these items and, and these topics progress forward as, as unfortunately the war continues. And of course, there are discussions taking place that envisage an end, a successful end, uh, from Ukraine's perspective. So there are discussions about the reconstruction programs. Now, at the moment, including the event that happened last month in London, they're very much uh, focused on what the private sector can do, what the sort of commercial reconstruction programs would look like. Do you think there is enough thinking going on, both internally in Ukraine and in the West, about those projects that can't necessarily be taken on by the private sector? That's the renewal of infrastructure. That's the cleansing of territories um, that have been sort of poisoned uh, by the war, that, that may be sort of toxic. Um, and even after demining takes place, there may be considerable work of decontamination and you know rebuilding all sorts of utilities from the ground up. I think it's a difficult discussion. It, of course, is very important because I think that world leaders are ahead of something, perhaps for once, about thinking about a post-war Ukraine, whereas in some cases, reconstruction discussions occur after a conflict has ended and there's this whole thought process. And it's easy to speculate. Who knows what will happen in the future? But there is a, certainly a possibility on creating a brand new Ukraine. And, and the two countries that come to mind are Germany and Japan in, in the post-World War II era, where these two countries were responsible for horrible acts against humanity and causing this horrible international conflict. And after the war ended, the United States, through its Marshall Plan and, and with the assistance of Western countries, worked in Germany and Japan to help rebuild these countries. And what do we see 40, 80 years later to 70 years later is these two countries are part of the G7. They're two of the world's leaders in technology, two of the world's strongest economic partners. 
And of course, right, we, we don't know if something similar will happen in Ukraine, but it, I think that international leaders and the leaders of private companies should be aspiring and thinking about that type of assistance for Ukraine to see, oh, well, what can we do to help Ukraine not only become successful in itself, but become this large international partner that is mutually beneficial for everybody. But of course, it would be unfair for Ukraine to shoulder the security burden alone of becoming Europe's front line. Um, other countries, I think you've written in a very interesting way, should also come into that security architecture. And that would include eventually Georgia uh, returning to the fold, moving away from you know Moscow's sphere where it currently sits um, and, and joining the alliance. One could even perhaps see a, a Belarus that can shake itself out of tyranny, also potentially forming part of that uh, European security architecture and eventually coming into the EU. It's not, you know, culturally, um, you know, the Belarusian people who are being sort of oppressed, I think would would, would fit extremely well into that security and social economic architecture. Um, but how important do you think is it for Ukraine that uh, there's a long-term vision for how this sort of framework of protection from Europe and from Russian aggression could be built out. I think that we've we've seen very important historic moments during the war. Prior to the Russian invasion, Finland and Sweden, two countries that have been neutral for decades, immediately decided we would like to be part of NATO, and now Finland's country 31, and, and it seems after the NATO summit that Sweden will be country 32. I think that speaks volumes in, in, in how the Europeans and uh, North Americans and other parts of the world are perceiving the importance of territory, integrity, and defense, etc. We have countries that are not part of NATO, but are working more closely with NATO, such as Ireland and Cyprus, and even Switzerland, a country that's famously known of being neutral, is having more conversations with, with NATO. So I think from the Western perspective, or what we perceive normally as the West, it just emphasizes the change in relationships and strengthening, strengthening these things. Unfortunately, in Georgia, there has been some backsliding in the government and and the opposition movement is fighting heavily against the Georgian Dream Party that is now, for reasons unbeknownst to me, creating stronger relationships with Russia and that they recently said Georgia will now allow commercial airlines to fly from Russia, vice versa. They're thinking about removing a constraint so that Russians have visa-free regime in, in Georgia. And, and what's very odd is this is also a country that has territory currently occupied by the Russians since 2008. So it's the opposition party, the citizens of Georgia, the Georgian president, all want what the Ukrainians want, which is a future with the European Union and NATO and protection and prosperity. And unfortunately, there is the government in Georgia that is going along in other lines. But that's why democracy is important and elections are important, as you vote these candidates out and hopefully have other candidates that are Western-leaning. And we've seen, too, in, in Belarus, another example, where Belarusians came out in mass protests in 2020 when Alexander Lukashenko stole the election from Mr. Hanoskaya. 
And she has been very active, as well as the Belarusian opposition, to try to continue these relationships with the West and, and establishing these connections. And while these protests have declined as, as Lukashenko has gotten more brutal, the Belarusian people are still doing what they can to help the Ukrainians because they don't support their government. And, and a few examples are Russia's using Belarus to transport military equipment and soldiers. There were several instances where Belarusians sabotaged railways so that these trains wouldn't be able to get in. High-ranking Belarusian military officials have resigned from their posts because they don't support what Lukashenko is doing. And even some Belarusian soldiers have left Belarus and are fighting in volunteer battalions on the front line defending Ukraine. So unfortunately, Lukashenko and Putin have a good relationship and, and there's often discussions about will Belarus be slowly annexed by the Russians, but I think that the people don't want that and, and the people now are seeing what's happening in Ukraine and they want a better future as well. So as I stated earlier on this on this topic, it's been very, very historic what we've seen over the last year and a half in that countries previously that were neutral are now siding more closely with Western institutions, countries that were previously neutral or Russian leaning and now trying to leave Russia's sphere of influence and just this creating this new world order and, and interconnectedness, I think is very, very moving and touching. And of course, uh, Russia's aggression has had the effect of making the Russian language problematic and toxic to many people. Now, prior to Russia's full-scale invasion, I think it'd be fair to say that all Ukrainians could understand Russian, even if they chose not to speak it, but actually many speak it as their as their first language, and Ukrainian is their second. But those Russian speakers have borne the brunt of uh, Russia's aggression, both the kidnappings, tortures, the forced... Um, you know, conscription into the army of people who are on the occupied territories, uh, their cities have been destroyed, which undermines the whole lie that uh, Russia came to liberate Russian speakers. But it's also had the effect of driving many people um, to really, you know, pick up the Ukrainian language, to flip to the Ukrainian language, to try and become fluent at it. And many people, you know, to me have expressed the pain, whereas it wasn't a painful thing to speak Russian, it was interchangeable and there was no real issues around that, despite the propaganda. Now, it is it is problematic. Russia has uh, made it a, a, a toxic thing. And some of the leaders in the Ukrainian military or the volunteer battalions, are their, their first language is Russian, too. So you have Russian-speaking Ukrainians and... and those in the regions, as you stated, who are fighting against this Russian opposition. And, and I think that that's yet another wave of, of Ukrainianization where there's this new wave of, we have to speak Ukrainian, we have to hold our, our traditions, we have to hold our culture. And it's also moving that people who speak Russian as their first language in Eastern and Southern Ukraine are deciding uh, those were the language 
languages that my ancestors spoke, either by choice or forcibly by the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union. And now I am willingly making the decision because of free will to speak Ukraine because that is the country and that is my language and just being very proud of of something. And it's not just a war about territory and and governments, but it's also this war on right these traditions and culture and heritage and and, and linguistics. So it's it's I guess a war on Ukrainian identity as a whole. Definitely. And of course one of the challenges in Belarus is that the but the Russian language has all but died out, except in in villages and so on, and uh, that that makes them perhaps far less resilient to Russian sort of penetration of their government, their information space, and so on. Well, the the, the last uh, sort of question really is something again which some of your comments and articles have focused on, and that is. The, what Putin seems to be hoping for is that Western commitment to Ukraine, which perhaps took him by surprise at the start of the war. He wasn't expecting that scale of support uh, and indeed supply of armaments, especially by Germany. Um, given that's happened, he still seems to be holding out for the West to lose interest, to wear itself out, for the Western public to reject and challenge their politicians and actually, I expect much of these sort of active measures uh, and coercion there uh, in their sort of hybrid information warfare is really tuned in to try to sow that sort of apathy and even resistance to supporting Ukraine amongst the Western public. It's not getting very far in the UK, but in the US, there's certainly uh, slightly more inroads there. And we know in Germany, there's been protest. So in your view, what is the challenge in you know, battling war fatigue? What is the challenge in battling the Kremlin's, you know, narrative to try and erode support? And can the West hold on here in supporting Ukraine till the point of victory, even if that takes this year, next year, however long it, it takes? I think to that point, President Putin, unfortunately, has an advantage in that he controls his government and he controls his country. And he has been in a position of power for over 20 years, usually stolen through elections. But despite the failures and the unjust and unnecessary war, President Putin still has a high favorability amongst Russians. Most Russians still support the war. So from the Russian perspective, there's no reason to change because they don't want to change. And that's a Russia problem. What what the international community will have to deal with is thankfully recent polling shows in, in the United Kingdom and United States that the majority of, of citizens are still very supportive of aid to Ukraine and they want their governments to do what they can to end the war. But as we all know, how democracies work, there are elections and there are political parties and, and different things. And, and I think that is one of the dangers is that Ukraine has to remain on the forefront for reasons we discussed earlier about fighting for democratic values and, and democracy and the international order and these just values that we hold so dear since World War II and, and ensuring that candidates that support those ideas continue to be elected and, and help these processes so that weapons and 
medical aid, financial aid, humanitarian aid, etc., are sent to Ukraine so that Ukrainians win the war. Well, Mark, it's been tremendously interesting talking to you, getting the sort of inside track on some of these discussions that have been taking place and some of the challenges uh, in Western support uh, and and what's been going on in NATO. Uh, I think we've covered a, a, a fantastic sort of spread of, of topics there. Um, but thank you so much for uh, making the time to appear on the channel and for the work you do. Thank you. And it's a pleasure being here. And thank you again for the invitation.